Week 3 Context and APIs. This week we will look at two topics in mobile and ubiquitous computing. First, we're going to focus on context aware systems. Then, we're going to look at web APIs. We will cover the necessity of context awareness as we lose control in UbiConf environments, the difficulties for machines of creating contextual awareness, types of context that machines must be able to sense to be context aware, features of context aware systems, why we use web-based APIs, and service design patterns with a focus on REST. We have a split focus this week, but there is still a lot of very important content here with critical concepts that we'll be coming back to throughout the module. Embeddedness, control, and context awareness. Why is context awareness a big challenge in mobile ubiquitous computing? Think back to week one, where we discussed the long-term evolution of computing from mainframe to desktop to ubiquitous computing. As devices become embedded into our everyday lives, designers have less control of the kinds of contexts that they will be used in. Think about that mainframe era. The developers in this context had complete control. They knew what kinds of technical environment the machine would run in, the network connections it would have, the other systems it would be plugged into. They knew what kind of physical environment to be housed in, the temperature, the size of the room, who would have access to the machine, and how it would be handled. In the ubiquitous computing era, these things no longer hold true. Devices must be capable of fitting into whatever technical, heterogeneous execution environment, or physical environment, heterogeneous environment, the device finds itself in. To behave appropriately, devices need to be able to have context awareness. They need to understand the world around them so they can adapt to it. This is a really big challenge for Ubicom. As people, we take it for granted how our awareness of context, which actions we perform, which ones we avoid in a given scenario. Because we take this skill to instantaneously recognize a situation and select appropriate behaviors for granted, it's often difficult for us to articulate why one thing is appropriate in a given context and another is not. And we don't get, always get it right either, which is often how we end up embarrassing ourselves. If we find it difficult to describe how we deal with context and how we make mistakes along the way, is it any wonder that context awareness in machines is still in a very early state? Features of context aware systems. Day explains the features a system needs to help create context awareness. They settled on three concepts, presentation, execution, and tagging. Presentation is the idea that context-aware systems should be able to show information that is relevant to people in their current context. For example, your phone could prioritise certain kinds of notifications if it realised you were on a night out to when it knew you were in the library trying to study. Execution is the idea that context-aware systems should be able to perform tasks on your behalf when a given context is detected. For instance, your phone could automatically reply to messages you received whilst you were driving. Tagging is the idea that events observed by the system need to be tagged with contexts so that the context information can be processed and used to help determine context in future scenarios. So your phone could keep track of how quickly you respond to all the notifications you receive 
and the content of these notifications. This information could be combined with other contextual information to tag the notifications. This tagged data could be used by rule-based or probabilistic systems, such as machine learning, to help con infer context in future. These three features help us think about the critical components for a context-aware UBICOM system. As we will see later, it's not necessary for a given system to have all of these aspects, but will it have at least one of these aspects? Apply context awareness in real scenarios. People have tried to implement context-aware systems in a number of real scenarios. First, let's consider the medical context. This is an environment where small errors can be very significant. Bardrum and Norskov developed a context-aware system by augmenting an operating theatre environment with tools that had RFID embedded in them. The goal of this system was to avoid the three W errors wrong place, wrong procedure, wrong patient. The idea was that the system could track all of the components in the system and, with a rule-based understanding of which things could be co-located, correct patient in the correct theatre, and which shouldn't, say the wrong surgeons for a given patient, such a context-aware system could help healthcare professionals realise when something had gone amiss. The system was deployed in practice, but that does not necessarily mean it is practicable. There was lots, a lot of technology to deploy, and the context awareness requires a complex system that would need adapting for each context, due to their heterogeneous execution and physical environments. Context-aware systems have also been deployed in agricultural contexts too. Agriculture is already highly computerized, so much so that farmers are employing Russian hackers to break digital rights management on their tractors. Getting all of the existing technology to work together is a big challenge though. There's a huge variety of equipment and the physical context is challenging. Kaya discusses developing a middleware that would allow independent agricultural technology to communicate. They point out the challenge of poor network coverage in agricultural areas, the non-standardisation of equipment, and the limitations of GPS as being major barriers to integration. Designing for context. We've learned so far about why we need context-aware systems, the features context-aware systems have, and a couple of examples of context-aware deployments. How can we design systems with context awareness? And in Day's chapter in John Crumb's Ubiquitous Computing Fundamentals proposes five steps for building a context aware system. Specification. In this step, a designer works out what it is that they want to do. For instance, show museum visitors information tailored to their journey through the museum. In this step, we are simply articulating what the system should do when it is complete. Acquisition. In this step, the designer needs to specify how they will collect the information that they will use to provide observations to their system. So in this stage, it might be develop an RFID-based token system to detect which exhibits a visitor is at. Delivery. In this step, a designer must work out how the acquired information will be distributed and shared to relevant systems. 
this could use a publish subscribe model. For example, use MQTT to deliver information on RFID inputs to subscribing systems. Reception. In this step, a system architect must decide what the threshold for notification is. For something like an RFID-based solution, you might want to receive all notifications of changes in state. But for, say, machine vision applications, it might make sense to have a threshold, for example, the size of a movement, so that only relevant observations are funneled through the system. Action. This is the final step where the system analyzes the input and decides how to act. For example, display information about dinosaurs if someone has just come from the bird exhibit. Sal Beretal's context widgets approach also describes some principles for the engineering of context-aware systems, which, they say, allows for better, more robust systems to be developed. They talk about the necessity of hiding comple the complexity of sensors from developers. This is critical and has been one of the great successes of APIs on Android and on iOS. If, for example, you want to know where, when there's been a sudden movement in an Android application, say, maybe for a dash cam, rather than have to continuously receive accelerometer data and determine based just on this noisy sensor input where there has been a significant movement, the API allows you to subscribe to such events. All of the complexity is abstracted away. We'll discuss this in more detail in week four when we talk about GPS. Salber et al. also describe the importance of information being abstracted in appropriate ways. In a system designed to let people know which room their colleagues are in, would it make sense to give longitude and latitude information? No, it wouldn't be the useful unit of analysis here, which is the room. So raw data should be abstracted into this form to make it more useful for developers. And this is really critical when designing APIs to access a service. What is the useful unit of information? In most cases, it is not raw sensor data. Finally, Salbertal recommends the reuse of existing libraries and techniques. Context can be idiosyncratic. A lot of the fundamental challenges of sensing and interpreting data are similar across domains. This is another reason for the success of, for example, AR, VR techniques in mobile devices in recent years. Shared common libraries that are well documented allow people to quickly make use of tools and focus on the application domain. In all this, though, we must think back to the concept of seamfulness that was introduced in week one. There will always be a situation in which these kinds of systems fail. Something will go wrong, whether because you as an engineer has failed, have failed to anticipate some mode of use, or because another engineer, maybe writing the libraries you use, for instance, has failed to do so. This is why the concept of seamfulness is so important. How will the system you're designing behave when things go wrong? Refer back to week one for the definitions of different approaches that Chalmers and McCall suggested. Introducing web-based APIs. As we've already learned, the ability for devices and services to communicate with one another is a critical component of ubiquitous computing systems. Last week, we saw how ultrasound could be used to transport information between devices. 
but most things don't communicate like this. Web-based APIs are probably the most popular way to transport information. An API is a way for applications and services to communicate in a standardized way. They are how we get our apps to talk to the underlying Android operating system. Not all the APIs made public and documented. There are proprietary aspects to APIs not intended uh, for use by, by App Store apps. Web-based APIs make use of existing technologies like HTTP to facilitate the movement of information. This makes it much easier to hook into existing APIs or to develop your own. There are many design patterns and protocols for sharing information between applications and services. SOAP is a messaging protocol that uses XML to transmit data. MQTT is used extensively in low bandwidth, low power contexts. These protocols provide the means of transmitting information. There's also a bigger picture, which is focused on the interoperability of services. Just because two services use HTTP doesn't mean they can talk to each other. REST, a service design pattern, is a way of structuring communications using HTTP in a way that allows developers to very quickly learn and assimilate new APIs into their software development practice. REST. REST, or representational state transfer, is our focus because it is in common use. It does not solve all problems. In many instances, it creates a huge number. But it is pretty much the standard way of designing APIs that use HTTP. There are lots of other approaches, but a complete circumnavigation of service design is well beyond the scope of this module. REST is a stateless approach to service design. It means it is ideally suited to the stateless nature of web infrastructure that it often runs over, things like proxies, for example. Stateless means that each request is treated as a new, independent request, so there's no intrinsic carryover between requests. The REST approach scales well because challenges of, say, load balancing are well understood in this context and from the development of high-performance web servers. REST revolves around URIs, the labels used in them and the actions by which they can be accessed. It makes use of HTTP verbs. These verbs imply different kinds of actions and these semantics are important to signal developers using an API what to expect. The HTTP verbs most commonly used are get, retrieve some information for me, post, create or update some information for me, put, create or update some information for me. Other verbs are available but what not widely used, including patch, delete, options, head, trace, connect. These verbs allow RESTful services to follow the CRUD principles of being able to create, read, update and delete data. The GET verb is used to retrieve or read information from the system. They are encoded in the query string of an HTTP request. Have a look at the document to see what one of these might look like. You will be familiar with these because most of the requests you make from your web browser are of the GET variety. GET requests should not be used to change the state of the system at all. 
they should only retrieve the current state of the system or the data the system controls. The post verb is used to send information to affect some action in the system. Normally a request would look like you can see in the document. And the payload, the information being sent, is sent in the body of the HTTP request, unlike GET requests, where the request is made in the query string, and hence in the head of the request. Note that in the instance um, described, the add new recipient uh, endpoint will be expecting new information on the system, not updating old information. You will be most familiar with posts from forms on your browser, like Google Forms, which often use post to return information you have entered to the server. Finally, there's the put verb. As noted, there are other verbs, but they are very rarely seen. These, like post requests, are in the body of the request, and they look something like the example that you can see in the document. Note that with put, unlike post, we are not specifying some action in the system to which we wish to push our data towards. Instead, we are specifying a unique item in the API. Why? The idea of put is that it should be used for creating or directly updating explicitly defined resources by URI. In this case, providing the data for that resource is unique template 1024, either as a new resource or to update it an existing one. The use of these verbs is controversial. If you look at a lot of popular APIs, you will see that they do not use put requests. Some people make no distinction between put and post and say that you should just use post for sending and get for receiving. It's also the case that for big APIs like Twitter, the API is never going to expose direct access to resources that allow data to be replaced. Instead, new items, for example, update to post 12903726, are created rather than data being overwritten. Because we are dealing with a philosophy for design and not a set of technical constraints, there is naturally disagreement over what practice, best practice looks like. Keep this in mind as you look at public APIs. One good guide is if your system manages all aspects of creating and updating, using actions like create new record or update old record, then post might be more appropriate. If your system allows individual resources to be explicitly created or updated, then put might make more sense. But there is no golden rule. An important characteristic of REST APIs is idempotency. This is the idea that an action should have the same effect no, many, no matter how many times it is run. This is important over unreliable connections and systems like the internet where the order of delivery is not guaranteed or where requests may have to be reset, resent. If we have designed our API to be idempotent, it makes our life much easier as developers because we don't need to worry about multiple requests. The state of the system should be unaffected. Compare this to the completely non-idempotent experience of web forms on online shops, which tell you that if you click a button more than once, you might be charged more than once. REST is not a magic solution to inter-service communication. There are many pitfalls to using it. First, the data returned by a REST API 
should be the same every time, as specified by the documentation. This often means you have to pull through far more information than you actually need, because there is no specific endpoint for the information you require. So either you end up with too much information, or your API accepts increasing numbers of parameters to an endpoint, so you get a scope creep, or you end up with an impossible number of endpoints. Alternatives to REST, like GraphQL, offer much more fine-grained control over the data that is requested. Webhooks. As we have seen, HTTP is a stateless protocol. We make a request, the server responds, and, well, that's it. It all vanishes, transaction over. There is no memory for what came before, and nothing to imply what will happen next. The design of HTTP means that there is nothing in the protocol that can support something like the publish-subscribe uh, model used by protocols like MQTT, which allows consumers of a service to have updates pushed. On the web, this historically has meant techniques like long polling have had to be used to receive timely updates. When we're talking with an API though, we don't even have the option to use long polling because once the connection is open, it's possible that there will never be another event sent, which wouldn't be good at all. So then, how do we get updates from an API? Do we just have to poll the API at regular intervals to find out if anything has changed? Well, that's not very efficient at all. If there are frequent updates, then our requesting service will constantly be outdated. And if they're very irregular updates, then we're wasting resources polling to get the same result over and over again. The solution is to use webhooks. These allow us to simulate a publish-subscribe approach through a web API. We tell an API that supports webhooks what kind of events we want to get, then the service, when updates occur, sends a POST request to an endpoint that we specify. This means that our service just needs to be ready and waiting to receive these POST requests, which you can then process, and potentially use that as a prompt to fire off more API requests. This solves the polling problem, but it does require more complexity for the API maintainer to keep track of which endpoints need to be notified of particular events. It also means that we need to have our own endpoint that is exposed and accessible from the internet so that the API service is able to post over the information. Although REST is very much tied to HTTP, the payload of a service, that is what it returns, is not specified. A REST service could return XML, or it could return some other plain text. It could return binary blobs, as they often do for images or videos. But often we want to return some data from a service, like a list of messages, the messages sent by a given user, you know, whatever. A nice standard way of sharing structured data of this kind is JSON. JSON started as a subset of JavaScript. So it is flexible and has relatively low overhead. These are the main re and the main reason for its popularity it is, is that it is very readily interpreted by browsers by virtue of being a subset of JavaScript. It is now used extensively outside browser context as a way of packing data. It's also easy enough to read. JSON is not perfect though. The flexibility it has means that it lacks rigor. You don't have types, and although simple documents are easy to read once you have nested arrays and 
objects to the nth degree, it's hard to know what's going on. There are approaches to solving the rigor issues, for example, JSON schema, but they're not intrinsic and so not always used. If you, ever come, if you ever come to use APIs in a professional context, the first thing you'll notice is that they are very, very substantially in quality. Good APIs have descriptive endpoints so that someone using it should have a reasonable idea of what they will get back from a given request. They should also be stable. APIs exist for other code to build on. Any changes should be made very infrequently and only after a very long notice period of years. Otherwise, you risk destabilizing applications you don't even realize are using your API. That's thinking again back to the dynamic heterogeneous execution environment. Finally, APIs should be consistent. If you use put in a certain way for an endpoint, all your other endpoints should use it in the same way. If variables across the API refer to the same objects, then you should use the same variable names across the API. It sounds simple, but often people do not do this, especially in smaller or bespoke APIs. There are often long lists of what makes a good API that might be worth reading. API first design. API first design is an approach to software development that makes the API the central feature of development around which other aspects of development are oriented. There are some advantages to this approach. First, starting out from an API tremendously increases the ease of building software down the line. You might only want to have a website for now, but if you have a high quality, well-documented API, then building a phone app is easy. Maybe down the line, other apps will be able to consume aspects of the API. If you already have an API in place, opening up this access becomes a lot easier. Focusing on producing an API also means that as a developer, you have to focus very early in the process on what your system is going to represent. It forces you to be careful early on about the names you use for things and what a given name comprises. It's a little like designing a relational database in that it forces you to consider fundamental aspects of what your software will do. This is helpful for ironing out conceptual problems that might be seriously problematic if discovered further along in the process. Of course, this approach isn't magic. APIs, as we've seen, should be stable. This means that in an API-first approach, once you've committed to an API, it gets progressively more and more difficult to make changes. So once an API has been made final, it really, really, really better do what it needs to. There's also the idea that the API-first design allows a clean approach to exposing functionality. Existing services should be adapted and extended to produce whatever the API requires. And of course, this is nice in principle, but it has the potential to force square pegs into round holes and significantly increase the complexity of what happens under the surface. An API-first approach to development is particularly useful in the context of mobile ubiquitous computing, though. In this context, the way that a system is going to be used, appropriated, in the future is hard to know. Being API-first gives maximum potential for a variety of different devices to interact with a service.